0: Alright, thanks Tony and Mark. Take a Bible. We are going to do a little bit of Bible drill here in just a couple of minutes. There's notes in the front and in the back. If you're joining us online, we've posted those uh, on our Facebook page and on our website. Wednesday nights we are talking about the Bible. It's a two-part series. The first part we are talking about the doctrine of the Bible. What is it that we actually believe about The Bible. And these are the topics that we're covering. Last week we talked about inspiration. Tonight we're going to talk about inerrancy in the weeks ahead, perspicuity, authority, necessity, sufficiency, power, unity, and beauty. That will lead us up to spring break. On the other side of spring break, we're going to still talk about the Bible, but we're going to focus on how you actually interpret the Bible. How do you make sense of the biblical text when you crack it open and you start to read it and you're trying to apply it to your life. So tonight... Uh, Our topic is inerrancy. For some of you, uh, this is way, way before your time. Some of you, who I will not ask to reveal yourself, remember watching a TV show in 1969 and 70 called The Liars Club. I'm looking for nods. I won't ask for a show of hands. Maybe a nod here or there, The Liars Club. Betty White was on this show, and the show was a pretty simple show. You had a panel of celebrities And then you had a couple of contestants. The celebrities were handed an object. And it's some weird thing that nobody has any idea what it is. And the celebrities take this object. One of them knows the right answer. The rest of them don't. They all explain to the contestants, oh, this is a such and such. And the contestants listen. And they have to figure out who is telling the truth and who's lying. Right? Simple show. There are three people lying there is one person telling the truth. Your job is to figure out who's telling the truth. A similar show is called, actually, To Tell the Truth. This show debuted in 1956. It's been on and off the air a number of times, as recently as last year, 2020. It was on, uh, on television. Same general premise, but slightly different. What you have in this show is a group of normal people describing experiences that they've had, telling stories. And then you have a celebrity panel trying to decide who's making it up and who's telling the truth. And they tell these stories and they ask details. And sometimes the panel gets to ask questions and you're asking questions to try to stump them. Are they going to have an answer? Are they going to be able to make up an answer? Will I be able to detect if they're lying? or if they're telling the truth. Uh, Interestingly enough, Betty White has been on this show. So Betty White, if you need someone to tell a lie or to tell the truth, she may be somebody to, to check in with. Both of these shows operate on an assumption, and it's an assumption that a lot of people challenge in the 21st century. The assumption in both of these shows is there is something that we would call the truth, and there are other things that we would say are Lies, falsehoods, and there's a lot of folks today on college campuses and talking heads on television and people in the entertainment industry that would prefer to talk about, well, you have some truth and I have truth and you can have this is true for you and I'm going to have this is true for me, but both of these shows just kind of cut through that and acknowledge the fact that, look, some stuff is true and some stuff is not true. There's things that's real and true and accurate. And there's things that are just phony and fabricated and completely made up. You've got to decide when you come to the scriptures, is this book telling me the truth or not? Is this book completely true? Is it mostly true but has a little bit of fibbing in there? Is it completely false? Is the whole thing just a fabrication in a story that somebody made up to pull one over on someone else. You've got to decide, is this book true or not? Many of you can remember listening to Billy Graham preach on television, maybe even some of you in person. Billy Graham was famous for always in his messages saying, the Bible says fill in the blank. The Bible says fill in the blank. Right? He had confidence that what the Bible said is true. Many people today do not. They have absolutely no confidence that what you find written on the pages of the Bible contains truth. Many people look at that and say, it's error. There's error mixed in there. There's a lot of error mixed in. There's some error mixed in. People have this question, is the Bible true or is it not? That's what we're dealing with tonight when we talk about inerrancy. Let me give you a couple of quotes. One of these is on your notes. The other one I'll put on the screen This comes from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, 1978. Being holy and verbally God-given, that's what we talked about last week. The Bible is inspired. It's given by God. Holy, right? Completely. Verbally. The words of it. We talked about verbal plenary inspiration. All of the words are inspired by God. They're breathed out by God. So being holy and verbally God-given. Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. No less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. That last part's kind of difficult grammar to think through, but this is what they're saying. The part about God saving people in His grace and His mercy is true. It's really true. And... The stuff about what God has done in history, the stuff about creation, the stuff about what the Bible says about where the Bible came from, it's also true. All of it is true. Baptist Faith and Message, the revision in the year 2000, says it like this. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. We talked about that last week. It is God's revelation of himself to man. This is special revelation. We talked about that last week. It is a perfect treasure Of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. Right? Two summary statements, theological statements describing what we would believe, what I would believe, what our church would believe about the inerrancy of the Bible. So let's jump in and talk about. Inerrancy. We'll start with this. The Bible is completely true. It's completely true. All of its affirmations and denials correspond with reality. Last week, when we talked about inspiration, I told you that there were plenty of people in pulpits and churches leading Sunday school classes all across our city, all across our state, all across our nation who would say to you, We believe the Bible is inspired. And when they say that, they wouldn't mean the same thing that we mean when we say it's inspired. All right? We talked about the differences in how people think about inspiration. When we have a plugged-in class at our church and we have new members or prospective new members coming, the very first doctrinal thing we talk about is this. And I just say to them, look, we believe the Bible is true. It's inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. All the words Are breathed out by God, and it is true. And I look those people in the eyeball like I'm looking you in the eyeball, and I say, I'm not trying to be cute or funny with my language here. I don't have one hand behind my back with my fingers crossed. I'm not winking at you. I'm not trying to be evasive or theologically uh, unclear. I'm just being very direct and very honest. We believe this book is true. That is the historic view of the church all throughout church history. There are people today, when you dig into this question of inerrancy, who say, oh, the the old guys didn't believe in that. That's something that was invented in the last century. No one's believed that for for thousands of years. That's just something that the, the fundamentalists, the evangelicals, have forced on us. Look what Augustine said. I'll put it up on the screen. He said, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. Did he use the word inerrancy? No. But that's what he's talking about. He says the Bible is completely free from error. Completely free from error. Martin Luther, fast forward about a thousand years. The Scriptures have never erred. The Scriptures cannot err. Did he use our word inerrancy? Not exactly, but this is exactly what he's talking about. The scriptures do not err. There is nothing errant or wrong or false in the scriptures. John Piper, more recently, he says, yes, the Bible is completely true. Yes, its claim to be the word of God is true. Yes, when rightly understood, it teaches nothing untrue. It is thus without Error. One more quote, R.C. Sproul. He says, an inerrant scripture cannot contain falsehood, fraud, or deceit. I'm sharing all these quotes with you to just drive home one really, really simple point. Okay? This is it. The Bible's true. That's it. And people say that, and they wink, and they cross their fingers behind their back, and they play theological games, and they try to be cutesy, and they try to create all sorts of caveats. And what we're saying is the Bible is true. It does not err. It does not contain falsehood. Moving on. The doctrine of inerrancy is a logical consequence of the doctrine of inspiration. So what we talked about last week is the foundation for what we're talking about this week. When you solidify your belief that the Bible, in all of its wording, is breathed out by God, that the men who wrote the Scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. Uh, That when, for example, David said things in the book of Psalms, it's the same thing as the Holy Spirit saying things in the book of Psalms. God is speaking through these men as they speak and as they write in the Scriptures. If you believe that, then it is logically consistent, unless you believe in some sort of lying deity, to say, well, the Bible must be true. If God spoke it and breathed these words out and inspired these men in their writing, it only makes sense that inerrancy is true. Moving on. The doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy require real consistency within the Bible. There's got to be consistency within the Bible. We're just trying to take these ideas we've talked about so far and mash them together and think about what it means when we read the Scriptures. If God's the author of the Bible, yes, Paul wrote it, yes, David wrote it, yes, Isaiah wrote it, yes, Moses wrote it, but if God's the one, God the Holy Spirit, speaking through these men as they write the scriptures, God's words breathed out, they're without any error, then when we read the scriptures, there's no contradiction in the pages. Paul's not going to say one thing that contradicts Isaiah. David's not going to say something that goes against Moses. Moses. There's things that are hard to interpret and fit together, but that's the task of biblical interpretation. That's what we're going to study after spring break. What we're saying right here is if God breathed these words out and they're all true, then they're all true, and nothing is going to mash up against the other words and uh, contradict them or, or invalidate them in any way. It's one of the reasons just to think about interpretation that Protestants have always argued for something called the analogy of faith, right? The analogy of faith. What that means is you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. When you come up against a passage in the Bible and you say, what in the world is this guy talking about? You go to other passages in the Bible that might be a little more clear and you use those passages to make sense of the difficult passages. We do that because we believe it all fits together. There's not gonna be anything in there That is contradictory. One more thought. Strictly speaking, inspiration and inerrancy only apply to the original manuscripts. I gave you the example last week of the Wicked Bible, a Bible where they left a word out, the not, out of one of the commandments, right? Commandment seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. They left the word not out, and they printed the thing in England, and it said, thou shalt commit adultery. Well, that's not inspired by God. That was a human mistake, in printing the Bible. If you have a copy of the Wicked Bible and you hold it up, you wouldn't say it's inerrant. You would say, well, a human made a stake in, in the typesetting, in the, in the printing. There's an error here. There can be errors in translation from one language to another language. So when we talk about inspiration and inerrancy, we're talking about the original manuscript. So we're going to come back to that idea in a minute. Some people complain Inerrancy is not a Bible word. I I can't show you a Bible verse that says the Bible is inerrant. And so some people say it's not helpful to talk about the Bible in that way. To which you and I would probably say something like, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But the church came up with this term. Because in the early years of church history, all of these different false teachers are popping up, and they're saying things that don't line up with the Scriptures. They're saying things about Jesus that aren't true. They're saying things about the Holy Spirit that aren't true. They're saying things about the unity of God that aren't true and the nature of Christ. And the church is trying to sort all of this out and come to a consensus about what the Bible actually teaches. And they say, look, we we need a term to describe what we actually believe here. That's no different with this term inerrancy. For centuries, all of Christendom just assumed that the Bible was true. But starting at about the Reformation moving forward in the Enlightenment period, you had men and women beginning to say, you know what, I don't think the Bible is completely true. And the church is wrestling with this. And eventually the church says, look, here's what we believe. It's really what we've always believed. We believe the Bible is inerrant, is without error or mistake, or contradiction. So, what does the Bible itself say? Let's do a little Bible drill. Numbers 23. We referenced this verse last week at the very end of our talk about inspiration, sort of as a segue to tonight. Numbers 23, verse 19, says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that He should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? This is Balaam, a pagan sorcerer that God is essentially speaking through. He's overriding Balaam's desire to curse God's people and he's blessing God's people. And God, speaking through this man says something very important about his nature, his character. He's not a man. He's not human like us. He's God. He's entirely different than us, and he doesn't lie. God doesn't say things that aren't true. You and I do that. We do it all the time. My guess is at some point today, you said something that wasn't entirely true to somebody. God doesn't do that. He's never done that. And if God breathes out the words of Scripture... If he inspires men to write words, his words in the Bible, those words are true words. They're not going to be filled with lies and half-truths. Flip over and look at 1 Samuel 15. Just a similar idea. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Regret. The glory of Israel is a reference to Yahweh, the Lord. He's not a man. He's different than us. He's a different category than us. It's a reference to his holiness. And in his holiness, in his uniqueness as God, he does not lie. If he's going to inspire men to write words, those words are not going to be untruths. They're going to be truthful. Look at the book of Psalms, Psalm 12. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Right? The psalmist is piling up descriptive terminology to try to help you understand that the word of God is pure. You understand if it's pure, the first part of verse 6, it's pure. Like you could stop the verse right there. The word of God is pure. Okay, I got it. No, no, hold on. It's like, Pure silver refined in a furnace. Okay, I got it. It's pure. Not just like pure silver refined in a furnace, seven times refined. Like he's, just, he's trying to say to you, listen, this word is pure. It's not filled with lies and it's not filled with deceit. It's not filled with things that aren't true. God's word is pure. Look at Psalm 19. This is a passage we're going to look at over and over and over again. Leading up to spring break. Psalm 19. Let's just read verse 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Look at Psalm 119. There there are so many verses in Psalm 119 we can look at. I just gave you two. Look at Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's not going to change. It's not going to go out of date. It's not going to need revisions. It's not like your iPhone that gives you that red button every couple of weeks and says, ah, we need an update. We messed something up. Something's wrong in the code. Download this. It'll fix it. Two weeks later, ah, we found another mistake. We're going to need you to download this update. Now we've got it, right? Forever, oh, Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's true. Look at verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. There's a great verse for you math lovers, right? Add up everything in the Bible. Take all the words, put them into a mathematical equation. This plus this plus this plus this plus this equals truth. It's all true. That's the answer. You don't even have to turn to the back of the book and hope they listed the answers to the odd numbers in the back of the math book. They just give it to you right here. The sum of all your words is true. Look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. Why not? Because they're true. He doesn't need you to add to them. Don't add to them. Every word of God proves true. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Let's go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, this is Jesus, verse 17 and 18. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, look. All that Old Testament stuff, it's not suddenly untrue. You're not just striking it out of the Bible, right? You keep all that, and I'm going to give you some new stuff, right? All of it is going to be fulfilled. None of it will pass away until it's all accomplished. John 14, 6. I know you know it, but sometimes it's good to just read it out of the Bible. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. We usually look at that verse and think about the exclusivity of the gospel, but there's also a, an epistemological claim about truth. Jesus says, I am the truth, I will not say anything to you that's not true. If I vouch for the scriptures, they're true. If my spirit inspires men to write things in the scriptures, they're true. Jesus is the truth. What does the Bible say about its truthfulness? I think you can sum it up and say the Bible is true. It's true. Let me give you a few thoughts about inerrancy and in language. Okay? These are not uh, caveats where I'm trying to wiggle out. These are just things that you need to be aware of, and they're things that we're going to revisit on the other side of spring break. Number one, inerrancy does not require modern technical precision. The inerrancy of the Bible is not dependent on modern technical precision. I'm going to show you one of the greatest pictures you've ever looked at in your whole life. Allen Fieldhouse, Lawrence, Kansas. Greatest college basketball arena in the world. When it's not COVID, I can tell you exactly how many people go to every basketball game at this arena. Right now, they let 2,500 fans and about 1,000 cardboard cutouts in the building. But in a normal game, there is 16,400 people at every single Kansas Jayhawk basketball game. You watch them. When we get back to normal, Jayhawks are on TV. Watch it at the beginning. They'll say, oh, we've got a sellout crowd, 16,400 people. Do you think for 300 consecutive games that there has been exactly... 16,400 people at these games. You think maybe somebody else snuck in and there was 401 one time or maybe somebody got sick and stayed home and there was 399 one time. You understand what they're saying. This is how many people, right? It's a true statement, right? Is it an exactly scientifically precise statement? No, but it's true. That's the capacity. That's how many people are there. It's full. The Bible talks like that. Sometimes the Bible says, this is how many people died in a battle, and you're like, wow, crazy, exactly 5,000? Not 5,001? Unbelievable. Well, maybe 5,001. The authors are just giving you a number, right? We use language like that all the time. The Bible uses language like that. That does not mean there are errors in the Bible. Secondly, inerrancy does not require perfect grammar. Inerrancy does not require perfect grammar. If you were to go to a court proceeding in Corey's hometown and there was a murder trial, you might hear somebody say this, I ain't never killed nobody. That's a triple negative. I don't even know what that really means grammatically. But in a court of law, if you get on the stand and you place your hand on a Bible and you say, look, your honor, I ain't never killed nobody, everyone's going to go, okay, we understand what this oaky redneck is saying. (laughs) Saying he's innocent. We get it. We got it. Okay? Look, in the Bible, if your seventh grade grammar teacher were giving a grade to some of Paul's sentences, she would say, run on, run on, run on, run on. This is bad grammar. This is incorrect grammar. That doesn't mean it's not true, it's just how Paul wrote. So grammar is not necessarily part of what we're talking about in inerrancy. Thirdly, you can thank me that I didn't make you spell this out. Inerrancy can accommodate phenomenological language. I can't even say it. Phenomenological language. Let me ask you this. Does the sun set or does the earth rotate? Thank you. Yes. Okay. Look, when you pull out your iPhone, I pulled out mine today, and I took this screenshot. And I know you can't see that. But it's my weather app for Odessa, and it says sunrise 750, sunset 606. There's not a sane person in the world that is filling out product reviews on the iStore saying, your weather app is highly unscientific because you're talking about the sunset, and we all know that the earth really rotates. The sun doesn't set. That's just how we talk. We talk about the phenomena of life as we experience it, as we see it. The Bible does that. The Bible talks about sunsets and sunrises. There's all sorts of things in the Bible that people will point to at different times and say, ah, look, gotcha, there's a mistake, there's an error. And many times you can say, look, that's just how people talk. Would you knock it off? Right? Go fill out a review on the App Store if you're that concerned about phenomenological language. Fourthly, inerrancy can include reported falsehoods. Let me explain what I mean here. Sometimes the Bible accurately and truly records the words of people who say wrong things. You understand what I'm saying? Look, when Job's friends show up and they start giving him advice, they say some really stupid stuff. Some stuff that isn't true about God. And you say, well, does that mean the Bible has mistakes in it? No, that's what they really said. The author of Job is telling you accurately and truly, this is what these people said. They were wrong, and the book makes it clear that they were wrong, but the Bible records that accurately. Lastly, the Bible can include the use of hyperbole. Jesus told people to cut their hand off and pluck their eye out. You look at that and you say, well, he didn't literally mean that. There's no sane Bible scholar that thinks that's what Jesus actually wanted people to do. You say, well, is that a mistake then? We're supposed to interpret the Bible literally. Does that mean there's an error in the Bible? No, it just means that's how people talk. People say, "Uh, man, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, I don't want horse, and I certainly don't want a whole horse. That's just what you say. It's hyperbole. I'm really hungry. And the Bible talks like that. Jesus talked like that. God talked like that through the prophets. doesn't mean that the Bible has errors. Now, I want to be honest with you for a couple of minutes, okay? Let's talk about some real objections to inerrancy. Things that people really say. All that stuff is kind of silly stuff. People say it. It's just silly stuff. You just laugh it off. This is stuff that some people really say. Some people say the Bible's only true when speaking about matters of faith and practice. This is sort of the old liberal tagline from 30, 40, 50 years ago, where you had people who started to say, you know, I want to hang on to the Bible, but I also want a little evolution. And I want to hang on to the Bible, but I'm not so sure I believe in all the miracles. And I want to hang on to the nice things that Jesus said, but all that stuff he said about hell, eh, I don't know about that. And so they come up with this idea. They say, look, when the Bible's talking about matters of salvation, it's spot on. Eh, some of the other stuff, eh, take it or leave it. It's not that big a deal either way. Okay. The problem is every time you crack that door and put your toe across that line, You never stop right there. Everyone who has ever done this in the history of the world ends up saying, well, and that's not true. And that's not true. And that's probably not true. And every step they take, they're ignoring all the verses we read earlier. The sum of your words is truth. Every word of God proves true. So you can't make this distinction and say, well, when it talks about salvation and heaven and love and kindness, it's true. All the other stuff, eh, take it or leave it. You can't, you can't make that distinction. Secondly, some people say there's clear errors and contradictions in the Bible. Look, we started the process last night of uh, Jake's ordination at our church. And we talked to him about his salvation experience and his call to ministry. And one of the things Jake shared with us, I didn't know this Until last night, he said in college, around college, he had a little period where he started to wrestle with some doubts, and he was reading some stuff about people saying, oh, the Bible's filled with mistakes, really probably isn't a God, and he's sort of wrestling with some of this stuff, and in his testimony, he said, I'm reading all of these questions, and these people poking these holes in the Bible. And he said, finally, I had someone in my life that kind of grabbed me by the spiritual shirt colors and said, hey, why don't you read someone who gives you an answer to all those things? Because guess what? There's answers to all those things. And you can pick up a Richard Dawkins book or a Stephen Hawking book or whoever, and you can read all these questions and these scientific things, and they're poking holes in the Bible, and you can come away saying, oh, my goodness, I had one of our church members text me just this week. He's going through his personal Bible reading in the book of Genesis. And he found this verse and he found this verse, two chapters apart, and they seem to say the exact opposite thing. And he's just texting me and said, hey, help me. What do I do with this? And I said, well, here's an article. I'm going to link you to an article. It gives an explanation. He read the explanation. He said, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Not a contradiction. I understand it. It makes sense. There are explanations to all these alleged errors in the Bible. And guess what? People have been explaining them for thousands of years. Augustine, in the 400s, wrote books and books and books explaining all these things that people were complaining about. John Calvin wrote books and books and books explaining all these things that people thought were contradictions and errors and mistakes. So most of these things can be explained. Thirdly. There are unthinkable, unpopular things in the Bible, so therefore it's inerrant. Well, number one, popularity is never the standard of what is true. You know that, and I know that. Secondly, the Bible does talk about slavery. I had a pastor friend call me tonight and said, hey, I'm talking about this part of the Bible that talks about slavery. You think people are about to get mad at me? I said, well, you got to talk about it rightly, but maybe I don't know. People get upset about things. It talks about slavery. Uh, it talks about wars. God's involved in some of those. It talks about sexual ethics, what you ought to do and what you ought not do. It talks about the exclusivity of the gospel. We just read John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way you can be saved. All that stuff is unpopular. And to many people in our culture, it's absolutely unthinkable. And some of that stuff you look at and you say, I'm sorry you're offended, but it's true. There's not really anything else you can say other than it's true, and if the truth offends you, I'm sorry. You can pray that God would convict that person of the truth. Some of that stuff, when you think about the wars and the, the slavery issues and some of the other stuff, sometimes if you just stop and think about it in context, and what was going on in redemptive history, some of it starts to make a little more sense. And sometimes when you untie your own cultural presuppositions about what's right and wrong, and you just come to the Bible, honestly, you realize, oh, that's not something I need to really be uptight and worried about. So we're going to talk about that, some of those things, on the other side of spring break. One more uh, objection. Remember I told you inspiration and inerrancy technically apply to the the original manuscripts, of which we have none. We don't have any of them. We have copies. We don't have any of the originals. So some people say, look, since we don't have the originals, inerrancy is meaningless. And they just point out the fact that when you look at all the copies we have, there are mistakes. Like sometimes they spell words differently. Heaven forbid. Right? And you you listen to some of these people objecting to Christianity, and they say things like, Well, we've studied the manuscripts, and there are 153,274 mistakes. And you're like, oh, man, that's bad news. I didn't know that. Well, sometimes that number is derived from one scribe back in the 500s misspelled a word and then everyone who copied his copy misspelled the same word and they add up all those misspelled words and they say, look, the Bible's filled with mistakes and you're like, look, a dude just left the S off the end of the word, right? We can figure it out. R.C. Sproul says this for more than 99% of the cases, and I'll be honest with you, I like R.C., I don't want to argue with R.C., it's really like 99.9% of the cases. The original text can be reconstructed to a practical certainty. So you're saying, what do we have to work with with all these texts? We're going to come back to this topic, but let me just give you a small preview, enough to sort of wet your whistle and say, you can trust that what you have in your Bible is the original text, right? You're going to have confidence in your Bible. You don't have to worry about all these mistakes. If you go back and look at ancient history, and you say, let's talk about some classical works written about the same time as the New Testament. We don't have any of the originals for any of these works. How many copies do we have? Well, Caesar wrote a book called The Gaelic Wars. We have 10 copies of it from history, 10. And scholars take those 10, and guess what? They don't... Match, exactly. Scribes writing by hand make mistakes. So they look at the 10 and they say, well, we can kind of figure out what he meant to say. Uh, Livy wrote a book called Roman History. We have a whopping 20. 20, twice as many. There's a guy named Tacitus. He wrote a book called Histories and Annals. We have two, two manuscripts, two copies of it. So you say, well, what do we have for the New Testament? Well, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we have 5,801. 5,801. Guess what? If you add the Latin translation of those Greek manuscripts, you add another 10,000. And if you take the Syriac and the the Ethiopian and all the other languages floating around there and you add all those copies in, not in Greek, not in Latin, you add about another 9,000. So we're talking about tens of thousands of, of manuscripts, I'll give you a couple of examples. This is the oldest fragment of a piece of the Bible that we have. It's John 18, 31 to 33. It's like three verses of the Bible from the Gospel of John, exactly as it's printed in your Bible. It dates to about 40 years after John wrote the Gospel of John. So it's within a generation, more or less, of when John wrote his gospel. It's called the Rylands Papyrus 52. You can go visit it in the museum if you want to do that. Here's another one, Codex Sinaiticus. They found this book on Mount Sinai, so they call it Codex. Codex is a Latin word for book. Sinaiticus is Latin for Mount Sinai. Codex Sinaiticus. It's the entire New Testament. Everything in the New Testament is there. It dates from about uh, 350 A.D., and it's all there, the whole thing. And these tens of thousands of manuscripts that we have range from that little bitty scrap I showed you to complete copies of the Bible, and they go way, way back in history, very, very close to the original authors, and really smart guys. I'm telling you, I've met these guys, you have never met nerdier guys in your whole life. These Bible scholar language nerds, they take all these fragments and they look at them and they know the Greek and the Hebrew and the Latin translations and they learn languages for fun so they can read these other manuscripts and they piece them all together and they say, guess what? The scribes made some mistakes when they wrote some of these words, but we know what it was. Look, my son's going to take his very first spelling test this week. They got five words on the list. Up, pup, bus, Two, there's one more. I can't remember what the next one is. He spells like me, and I'm telling you, he's going to miss one. Might be pup. He keeps saying P-O-P. I'm like, no, son, it's (laughs) P-U-P. Kindergartners, they they misspell things, right? But guess what? If you took all those spelling tests and you pulled them back, and I didn't tell you what the words were, you could look at them, mistakes and all, and you could say, "Uh, first word, up. This kid wrote O-P. Yeah, it's up. We understand that. Next word, pup. Clayton wrote pop, but it's pup. Right? You could go through and you, you would figure it out. This is not rocket science. Really smart dudes do this with these manuscripts. They sit down at a desk, they compare them all, and they say, we know what John wrote. We can see because of all these copies. We can see where a scribe missed a letter here or there. You can have confidence that we know what the Bible says and that the Bible we have is inerrant. So, why does all this matter? I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, denying inerrancy makes God a liar. I never for the life of me will understand the people who try to look you in the eye and say the Bible is inspired by God and has mistakes. I don't get it. You got you to buy the farm or you got to sell the farm. Either it's not inspired and you can have your mistakes or it is inspired and there are no mistakes. That's a zero-sum game you've got to pick a side. God is not the author of lies. Secondly, denying inerrancy makes the Bible unreliable. I understand this is a slippery slope argument, but is 100% borne out and proved out in church history. Once you crack the door to saying there's a mistake in the Bible, there's something that was truly written by the biblical authors that is not true, you will find something else that you think is not true and something else, and something else, and something else. And if you're intellectually consistent, eventually you'll say, I don't want anything to do with all of it. Makes the Bible completely unreliable. Thirdly, denying inerrancy elevates us to the ultimate authority. We become the one who decides what's true. Well, this part's true. This part's not true. What hubris, what pride, what arrogance that we would set ourselves above the word of God as a higher authority to determine what we want and don't want, what we like and don't like, what we'll believe and what we won't believe, what is true and what is not true. That is not our determination to make. That is God's determination to make. In the end, it's a work of the Holy Spirit that convinces someone or convicts someone that the Bible is true. Calvin said, those whom the Holy Spirit is inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. And he's not saying don't think about the Bible. He's saying don't approach the Bible and try to poke holes in the Bible. If the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you will approach God's word with the humility that it is his breathed out word and that it is true. And you won't try to outsmart it or outthink it. You'll just accept it for what it is. There are difficulties in the Bible. J.C. Ryle acknowledges that and he says, look, give me the plenary verbal theory of biblical inspiration with all its difficulties. We talked about that last week. Rather than the doubt. I accept the difficulties and humbly wait for the solution. But while I wait, I am standing on the rock. We believe that. We believe that Jesus meant when he said, where if you build your life on my word, you're building on a firm, solid, sure foundation. And we believe that because God's word in the Bible is breathed out. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is true. It is completely without So let's pray together.